Good morning, High Street. How are you today? I hope you had enough turkey and uh, didn't overeat, right? Well, I'm so thankful to be here this morning. I want to talk to you about how to have a thankful heart. Let's talk about having a thankful heart this morning, right? That's really important this time of year. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 107, Psalm 107. The setting for this psalm is really interesting and will help us to identify with, uh, with what's going on here. So the nation of Israel has a rich history. We see all that's going on in the Middle East right now and uh, understand that's kind of been a part of their history. God called them through Abraham about, from this setting about 1,600 years before this, hap- before this was written. And uh, he, he, they were a special nation. God said, you are my chosen people. And they had, all, they had all kinds of blessings. They had the covenants. They had the promises of God. They had his direction. I mean, they had in the wilderness, remember, they had a pillar of a fire by night and cloud by day. And wouldn't that be nice, right? To, so that we could identify and see you know, where exactly God wanted us to go step by step. They had it all, and yet they continually rebelled against him. They bickered with one another, and it became kind of a repeated testimony of theirs that even though they had all the advantages, they just had great difficulty obeying what God wanted them to do. And so God began to send prophets to warn them. And Isaiah began to warn them and and say that God is going to raise up a nation, the nation of Babylon, and Babylon is going to come and take over the nation of Israel. And indeed, a hundred years or a hundred or so years after Isaiah made that prophecy, Babylon came, raided Jerusalem, tore down the temple and took between four and 5,000 of their strongest leaders back to Babylon with them. And that was a horrible time. Nebuchadnezzar tried to uh, rid them of this Jewish heritage and tried to indoctrinate them with the uh, godless Babylonian secular culture. And in many cases, he succeeded in doing that. You may remember the story of Uh, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that all took place in Babylon, and they had been leaders in Israel and were taken captive and taken back to Babylon. After 70 years, the Medes and the Persians came, and they invaded Babylon, and then they took over the, the nation of Babylon, and one of the things King Cyrus did was told Israel they could go back to their homeland. And so, most of the writers that I studied after believe that Psalm 107 was written on that journey back to Babylon. So, imagine how grateful they must have been after 70 years away from their homeland. And Jerusalem had a very important place in their lives. All of their religious background and all of their history And all of their worship took place in the temple in Jerusalem. Today we know the heart, our heart is our temple, and we worship the spirit, and we, I mean, we worship in spirit and truth. 
But in that day, Jerusalem was very, very important. So imagine how horrible it must have been for them to be separated from that for 70 years. We can get a picture of how miserable they were um, in Psalm 137, verse 1, the writer says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. It must have been a, a horrible thing for them. And to be, to, to be turned into a secular culture when they were so used to having the temple there as their place of worship. So the song or the psalm was written either on the way back or right when they got back to Jerusalem. And notice the very first verse. After being held captive for all these years, after dealing with all of the rebellion and the disobedience that led up to their captivity, they wrote, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. How in the world, as I read this, I thought, how in the world could these, this group of people who had been under captivity, not in chains, but separated from their families, maybe separated from their grandchildren, their aunts, their uncles, how in the world could they write after all, after 70 years of that and say, the Lord is good? And they mention two qualities. They talk about, first of all, he's good, and then they said his love endures forever. One of the foundational principles of our faith, church, is believing that God is good. Even in the difficult times, even when when we're rebellious, and even when we're suffering from our own disobedience, one of the things that we need to have drilled into our soul is the fact that God is good, no matter what. Um, think about this. The devil's primary attack in the Garden of Eden was to question God's character, to question God's goodness. He told Eve, he said, God's motives are not good with you. He's afraid you're going to be equal with him. And so you don't want to obey him. And he lied. Of course, we know Satan's a liar. He always lies. And he hasn't changed much since the Garden of Eden. Take a minute and think about what it means for God to be good. When we talk about God's goodness, it's a concept that's heard hard for us to wrap our minds around. Because we live in a world where there's not a lot of purely good things. It seems like there's more bad sometimes than there is good. When John wanted, the Apostle John wanted to illustrate for us what it meant for God to be good, he said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we've never known anything like that, have we? Have you ever known someone or something that was so perfect that there was not one iota of darkness in them? John said that's the way God is. He's good. There's no darkness in him. In spite of all these people had been through, they recognized a principle that's so important to us. 
and that is the heart of our heavenly Father, is that it's his delight. Hear me this morning. It's his delight to do good for all who are his. His goodness is reflected in his generosity toward us. But then the writer goes on to say that he has a steadfast, generous love. Some translations say it's his mercy. It's his enduring love, his steadfast love. The Israelites were so resilient. I'm, I'm amazed by them. After all the rejection that they had endured, all the loss, how could in the world could they speak of God's love? And how could they speak of God's mercy? John said, God is love. He's not just loving, he is love, right? And in the context of this passage, it means he loves us just as we are. He doesn't ask us to get rid of all of our baggage. He loves us just as we are, and he accepts us. And speaking of baggage, I want you to notice the second thing in this psalm. They remembered their story, and I think that's important for us to do as we think about God's love. It's important that we look back and we see the loving hand of God in our lives, the loving hand of God guiding us, and yes, sometimes loving us enough to discipline us, providing for us and giving to us and being gracious to us. And then the writer, after taking three or four verses to give an overview of God's goodness to them, he gets very specific. Notice, if you would, in verse 10. Speaking of the nation of Israel, the writer says, some sat in darkness, in, other, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering from chains because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. Do we have anyone here this morning that's ever been rebellious? Now, if you don't think so, think about the last time your wife looked at you and said, honey, you need to lose weight. What's the first thought you had? You probably bowed up and said, well, who are you to tell me to lose weight? You know why that is? It's because we're fallen. And our first reaction is usually that reaction. Who are you to tell me what to do, right? We're rebellious. Have you ever had God lead you in a specific way, specific way and uh, you say, no, God, we're not going to do it that way? The nation of Israel did that over and over again. And I got to tell you, there's times in my life when I have, uh, you know, you, we don't see this, the handwriting on the wall, but we know our heart. We know when God is speaking to us. And uh, there have been times I know when I've made that wrong choice. And then jump down to verse 17. Not only were they rebellious, but um, sometimes they were foolish. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. Have you ever done anything foolish? I won't, I won't go into detail here because it's too convicting, all right? But some of them became foolish. Then down in verse 21, he talks about some that went through storms, some that went out into a rocky sea and there were thunderstorms and thunderclouds and waves and the wind was blowing and it was a troubled, troubled time. Any of you ever been in trouble? 
You see, these Jews said God is good. He's good when we made rebellious decisions. He's good when we were fools. And he's good when we're in trouble. But he doesn't stop there. Down in verse 33, he says, uh, let them give thanks. Let them exalt him. He turned rivers into deserts, flowing springs into thirsty ground, and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who lived there. And he begins to talk about those who were in need. Have you ever been in need? I can tell you days when we have or when I have. And God was always there to meet that need. And I think it's really important for us to notice that in every one of those times, the Bible says they cried out to the Lord. Look at verse 13, if you would. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. And I think that's the key to understanding the goodness of God. It's not that we never have a problem, people. It's, it's that when we have this difficulty, when things come into our lives that we don't like, or when we make a choice and the minute we make it, we know it was a dumb choice, we know we should have never done that, but we cry out to the Lord, and every single time he's there to rescue us. Verse 19 tells us again, they cried unto the Lord. And verse 28, they cried unto the Lord. Every time they cried to the Lord, God heard them. Why is it that our first reaction when we failed, or our first reaction when we've taken a a direction we shouldn't have taken, or our first reaction when we made a bad choice. Why is it that in our first reaction is to huddle up, not to reach out, to become inward, to build walls around us? The secret to Israel's ability to say God is good is they cried out to the Lord, and every single time, He was there. Listen to this verse. Psalm 34, verse 18. Psalm 34 is a psalm that David wrote after his restoration from a horrible failure. And he begins to write about how gracious the Lord was to him in restoring him, in forgiving him. And he wrote this. He said, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He doesn't run from us when we have failed. He doesn't run from us when we've made a horrible mistake. He doesn't run from us when uh, the direction of our lives takes a, a strange path. The Bible says he is near the brokenhearted. He saves those whose spirit is crushed. Have you ever been crushed? Have you ever felt like there was a weight on your shoulders just crushing you down? The Lord is near during those times. In Psalm 50, the Bible says, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. What if that very thing that causes us to cringe in the quiet moments of our life, 
is something that causes God to draw close? What if the most embarrassing moments in our life is something that causes God to run to us? That's a good God. That's a God of steadfast love. There's a story in the New Testament, Luke chapter 15, and many of you will be familiar with it. We call it the story of the prodigal son, but it's also the story of a loving father. This son was like these Old Testament Jews. He shook his fist in the face of his father and said, I want my inheritance now. I'm out of here. I'm tired of living on this farm and doing all this work, and I'm tired of you, old man. And the dad lovingly gave him his inheritance, and off he went, and he squandered it. Horrible decisions, horrible choices, in all kinds of trouble. Usually when we make those bad decisions and those bad choices, it ends up in trouble, right? But then the son had a thought. If I was back on the farm, he said, I could at least be a servant and at least have food to eat. And so he began to make his way back. And he had this speech all planned out. Dad, I've, I've done wrong. I've sinned. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against my family. I've sinned against God. He had it all planned out. But what happened was, you remember, the father was on the front porch watching for his son. And the minute he saw him, he ran to meet him. You see, that's the picture of a good God. God doesn't run from us when we have failed. He's there to meet us, which is why we practice a life of thanksgiving. The Bible says that they gave thanks for God's great deliverance in their life. Would you jump down and look with me at verse number 42? But he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouths. And then he concludes the psalm with these words, let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. So in this time of thanksgiving, can we look back in our lives and see how good God has been to us? Not that every day's been perfect. Not that the bank account's always been full. Not that we've never been sick. Not that we've ever, never lost a loved one. But that in every situation, God has been good. One of the great things I think that Psalm 107 teaches us is that gratitude is born in humility. Gratitude is born in humility. Being thankful is about remembering. If there's anything Psalm 107 teaches us is that gratitude is born in humility, and if there's a crisis of gratitude in our lives, it's because we have become forgetful. And so this morning, let's remember how good God was when we were rebellious. 
Let's remember those times when we made bad decisions, but God gently took our hand and led us through those consequences. In times when we're in trouble and God stepped out. Times when we had great need and God supplied. Perhaps today, you're in a period of your life where you're distant from him. It's hard when we don't have that connection, when we don't have that closeness with our Savior. It's extremely difficult. It's hard for us to be able to relate to him, but he wants us to reach out. You may be here today and not have a relationship with him. The Bible says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Only place in all the Bible where it talks about God being rich is right there. He is rich in mercy. How did he do that? He did it because the richness of his mercy that flows out of the heart of God took him to become the form of a man in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't come and send his Son to this earth to make us poor. He came to feed the poor. Isaiah said he came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim forgiveness to those who are not his. He said, I came to reveal sight to the blind, to heal the brokenhearted. That's you today. That's why Jesus came. He came because he cares. He came because he loves you and he desires for you to have a relationship with him. And I would call on you this morning for two things. First of all, if you're a child of God, can we just sit and remember his goodness? You and I here this morning are old enough to remember those times when we failed, those times when we made a bad choice, those times when we were in trouble. God always, always came through. He is a faithful, faithful God. I can stand here and tell you after all these years that he's faithful. Never been a day when he wasn't. There's never been a day when there was a a dark cloud in his love for us because God is light and in him is no darkness at all.